turn to Psalm 83. <clears throat> Psalm 83. So, 83? 83. Psalm 83. This is our last psalm of the summer for 2014. And Dolly says, Amen. Amen. <laughs> Dolly does not like the Old Testament. Can you believe such a thing? Yeah, it's true. I mean... I actually thought of changing from going to the Gospel of John next time to, you know, Exodus, but I figured she'd stone me, so I didn't do that. Uh, I believe this is our sixth year through Psalms in the summer, and that means we are now 55% through the 150 Psalms. 55%. That seems strange, doesn't it? It seems like when you're done 83 of 150, you should be at least into the 60s or something. And we'll probably get up to Psalm 100 you know, by next year, and then we'll be two-thirds of the way through the song. Uh, this is also the last song written by Asaph in the 150 Psalms. And it's like we're leaving an old friend. Goodbye, old friend, you know. Uh, because he's written so many of these songs, especially the ones that we've read this week. And then, starting next week, uh, we will go into the Gospel of John. Now, I preached through the Gospel of John 27 years ago. I had a church. One of the first books I preached through at that time. Uh, the students who are here weren't even born when I preached through that book. If you have children that are their age, you were their age when I preached through the book. And if you have grandchildren that age, that means that you were probably in your late 40s or early 50s when I preached through that book. So I was young when I preached through the book. <laughs> but a lot of things have changed since then. And I've studied more in this book, and I've got some new perspectives, and I think it's going to be fun, so I look forward to restudying the book of John. So that'll start next week. Now let me give you the historical background, a little bit of some... 83. All it says is that it's a song, which means that it was something that was sung during worship. Uh, and it was written by Asaph. But we believe that uh, this takes place somewhere around 730 B.C. And Assyria, the great Assyrian Empire, is ruling the world. And uh, they are expanding their territory, and they want to come down and attack uh, Israel, the kingdom in the north, and Judah, the Jewish kingdom in the south, and they are on the move. And so this is a prayer, in a sense, a, a request or a plea by Asaph to spare the people. So we're going to divide it this way. In verses 1 through 8, Asaph makes a complaint. So we're just going to call this the complaint. And you know, a lot of times we complain, don't we? And uh, you're going to see he's complaining to God. And then verses 9 through 18, we're going to call that the prayer or the petition. And here he asks God to do something. So with that understanding, let's take a look. And uh, I'm going to turn you one time later in the teaching to the book of Judges. And, uh, you know, if you haven't read Judges in a long time, you're not even going to remember some of this. And this is going to be sort of new material for you, and I think that you'll enjoy that. So let's look at the complaint. Psalm 83 and verse 1. 
Now you can read this any way you want. You could read it like this. Do not keep silent, O God. Or you could say, Do not keep silent, O God. See, depending on how you read it, it takes on new meaning, doesn't it? So look, do not keep silent, O God. Exclamation point. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. Now when you look at that verse, you'll notice that there's something that's mentioned three times. And that is basically, do not. And it's mentioned three times for emphasis. It's repeated three times. And what he's basically saying is, don't be silent. Don't hold your peace. Don't be still, O God. Now why would he say that? It implies something, doesn't it? It implies that God has been silent. <laughs> you don't say don't be silent if God's been doing something. So it means God has been silent and things have been going all on all around about them and God's not doing anything. And it also implies, even though it doesn't say it, it's implicit that God needs to do something. Okay? Now we have the reason for the complaint. What's, why is he complaining? What, what precipitates the complaint? Well, look what it says in verse 2. For behold, and you know what the word behold means, that means look. Uh, look around you, God. Take a look at what's going on. How can you sit there and be silent? Behold, your enemies make a tumult, which means there's a lot of noise going on. There's a, there's a rattling of the sabers. <laughs> the psalmist knows that there are troops rattling their armor, ready to invade the country. And uh, they're making a lot of noise. Uh, which is very interesting, because they're making a tumult, which means they're making noise, and guess what God's doing? He's keeping quiet. He's keeping quiet, and guess what? The enemies aren't keeping quiet. They're raising Cain. And look what it says then. And those who hate you, verse 2, have lifted up their head. There's a crisis afoot. They are, they are scoping out the territory. That's what's happening. Verse 3. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. They have consulted together against your sheltered ones. So now what we have is we have the object or the target of their wrath. And notice in verse 3, against your people. Do you see that? Against your people. That's Israel. And in verse 3, against your sheltered ones. That would be those behind the walled cities. So what we see here is that there's this coordinated effort. Notice crafty counsel. Do you see that? Crafty counsel. Look at this. Consulted together. There's a coordinated effort among the enemies. Uh, to target God's people. Now, it's called, the people are called your people. You see that in verse 3? But in verse 2, look what the nations are called. Your enemies. Do you see that? Your enemies. Your enemies, but who are they targeting? God's people. They can't get to God, obviously, so what are they doing? They're attacking God's people. So, the fact that they've consulted together and the fact that they have taken crafty counsel 
means they're plotting. This is a serpentine plot. A conspiracy is afoot. In other words, they're in these back rooms and their leaders are plotting together. They've got a conspiracy. And they have a goal in mind. And look what their goal is in verse 4. They have said in those smoke-filled rooms and they, as they're making their plans in the war room, look what they've said. Verse 4. Come, let us cut them, that's God's people, off from being a nation. That the name of Israel will be remembered no more. Their goal is nothing less than absolute extermination of the nation. Make this nation extinct, in a sense. Annihilate every Jew on the face of the earth. That's their goal. You ever heard that before? The Jewish solution to a problem? So here you see that Adolf Hitler wasn't the first dictator that wanted to you know, eliminate God's people and the nation. And it's been going on ever since. We've had anti-Semitism ever since. So now what they do is they form this alliance. So look in verse 5. For they have consulted together with one consent. In other words, they're unified on their goal and they're unified on their target. Verse 5. They form a confederacy against you. So to be against God's people is to be against God. So that's what we have. We have this alliance that has been formed. And who was involved in the alliance? Now they are identified. Now we're going to find out who the enemies are. Now look at 6, verse 6. First of all, there's 10 enemies mentioned here. First of all, number 1, the tents of Edom. The tents of Edom. Now who was... Who were the Edomites? These were descendants of Esau. Remember Esau that sold his birthright for what? A bowl of pottage for, for some red bean and rice. You know, combo or something. And uh, so these are his descendants. And they are against... They are against the Jewish people. And so that's the first enemy, the descendants of Esau. Okay. Now look at el what else in verse 6. And the Ishmaelites. Remember who Ishmael was? Abraham and Hagar had a son. Ishmael. Okay. And this would be the descendants of Ishmael. Abraham was told that he was going to have a son of promise. Isaac. He couldn't wait. So instead of walking by faith, he walked by flesh. And he has a son by his slave girl, Ishmael. And God pronounces a curse on Ishmael and his descendants. He said, you will be wild people. And they have turned against God's people. So that's Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael. Now we'll look, who else in verse 6? Moab. Now Moab has always been against Israel. But the first person named Moab, very interesting. Moab is the offspring of of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Now I could turn you to all these different, every person here is mentioned in the Bible. We could go back to Genesis and look at every one of these situations. And every one is a tremendous story. But you know, we would be here until Labor Day. Since we're supposed to have Labor Day off, we won't go back there and look at all these different references. But I want you to know that you need to know who these people are. 
That's Moab's descendants. Now, not the original Moab. He's been dead for years, right? But Moab's descendants. And then look at the next group. The Hagarites. Now, that should give you a clue. Who, who are these people? Well, somehow we know they're related, related to Hagar, don't we? These are Hagar's offspring, most likely by a second or a third marriage. She had kids. And then they had descendants, and they all are also conspiring to destroy God's people, the Hagarites. Now look at verse 7. Gebal. This is a group of people who live south of the Dead Sea. Okay? And if you actually found out where all these groups were located, you'd discover that they surrounded the nation of Israel pretty much. They encircled the nation of Israel. Look who else in verse 7. Ammon, or Ammon. Now, who's Ammon? Well, this is the second son that came about through an incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughter. And now they have descendants, and they have turned against God's people. And uh, Ammon lives uh, east of the Jordan. And there is a the capital of Jordan today is called Ammon, but with an, with an A-M-M-A-N, but it's the same location. Same exact location. And then Amalek, that's a word, that's a group that you're familiar with, so we don't have to go to that. Philistia, you know, you're familiar with the Philistines, right? They're on the uh, west cut west of uh, Jerusalem. Philistines, uh, remember, who was it? Was it the giant? Yeah, the giant. What was his name? Goliath. Goliath, that's it. Yeah, Goliath, you know, and this would be his relatives down through the centuries. They've been against the Jews forever. And then, verse 7, with the inhabitants of Tyre. And Tyre was a, um, a town, a coastal town on the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. And so the people from there are against the Jews. And then, verse 8, the tenth group. Are the, is Assyria itself who has joined with them. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Now, some of your translations have Asser in there. Anybody have A-S-S-U-R instead of Assyria? Okay. Now, why does it have Asser in, in my translation has Assyria? Because Asser is the god of the Assyrians. And so it basically means that uh, Assyria and the power behind Assyria, its God, are backing this invasion. Assyria really controls pretty much a large portion of the world. And these are allies. They're all in an alliance, and they're against uh, the Jewish people. And they're part of backing and probably financing this secret invasion uh, that Asaph finds out about. So it's an unholy alliance. Okay? It's demonic composed of ten different groups of people. He says, Selah. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, this song was either written when Asaph was expecting an invasion, or it was written after the fact, and he's just recording the events in the song. But in any case, it says Selah, which means it's, these are instructions for the the choir master to have some interlude in the music so that people can think about, hey, how dangerous is this? I mean, this could wipe everybody out. This is pretty dangerous. So there's the complaint. So the complaint is 
Verse 1, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. And here's the reason for it all the way down through verse 8. Does that make sense? Okay, now let's look at the petition or the prayer. So here is what Asaph asked of God. He says, deal with them. He's now addressing God directly. In other words, God, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin, at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuge on the earth. Okay? Now this is a reference, this here, he says, I want you to deal with these people the same way you dealt with Midian. And that's a reference to uh, Deborah and Barak fighting the Midianites. And we're going to turn there in a minute, and you're going to see these, these names. Midian, Sisera, Javan. You're going to see those names. And Deborah and Barak, who were judges, Deborah was a judge in Israel before they had kings, and uh, she led a battle against the Midianites and defeated them, and it was a rowdy. And what... what the psalmist is saying is, God, remember how you routed the Midianites under Deborah? Do the same thing in this conspiracy and in this war, will you? So that's petition number one. It makes a reference to history, a past historical event. Okay? Now petition number two, or example number two, we might want to call it. Look at verse 11. Make their nobles like Oreb, and like Zeb. In other words, do to these people what you did to Oreb and Zeb. Yes, all their princes, like Zeba and Salmuna, who said, Let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Now, this is a reference to Judges 6 through 8. And you remember the name Gideon. Gideon is now a judge or a ruler in Israel. And these are four chieftains who have said, let's go in and take the pasture of God. Let's take over God's land. Let's take everything that he owns. And guess what? Gideon basically destroys them. Okay? So we have two historical references here. Now I'm going to show you these people's names in the book of Judges. So, Keep your spot here and turn over to the book of Judges. And it's very interesting, and I think you probably won't remember these events. You remember who Gideon is, and you may even know who Deborah is, but watch how the events, the events unfold. So the first is found in Judges chapter 4. Deborah and Barak. So watch what happens here. This is the first example that Asaph gave. Route them like you did these people. So look at Judges 4 and look at verse 12. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, Abinoam, who had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, and that's the bad guy, 900 chariots of iron and all the people who were with him from 
Harosheth. Hey, Goyim. Goyim means Gentile. <laughs> Bunch of Gentiles. To the river Kishon. You saw that back in Psalm 83. Those words right there. Then Deborah said to Barak, Ah, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? And the answer is yes. So what do we have to worry about, right? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera. Now wait a second, I thought Barak routed Sisera with these 10,000 men. He did, but guess who was behind him? The Lord was behind him. That was the guarantee right there. You see that? So then it goes on to say, verse uh, 15, The Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and he fled away on foot. Barak pursued the chariot. And the army, as far as Hereseth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, now that's the other name that you just saw in Psalm 83, king of Hazor, and the house of Hebar the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Don't fear. Come on into my tent. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. He'd been on the run. You know? Then he said to her, Please give me a little drink of water, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a jug. Give me a water to drink. So she opened a jug, jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent. If any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You just say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him, snuck up on him, and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep. And weary, and so he died. <laughs> and then, and then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him, and she said, "Come, I'll show you the man who you seek." And when he went into the tent, there lay Sisera, dead with the pains. So on that day, God subdued Jabin. King of Canaan, that's one of the persons person you heard in the other, in the Psalm 83, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Then Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang on that day. And there's a song that they began to sing, the song of victory. So what does the psalmist say? Remember how you routed Sisera and his army and conquered Jabin? Do the same to these ten nations that are coming against us. Will you do that, Lord? That's the prayer. You don't want the Lord to answer that prayer if you're the enemy. Now, look over at the next example, which is Judges 7. This is the four chieftains that were mentioned, and you'll recognize their names immediately. Judges chapter 7. And we'll just read a few of these verses. 
And look down at verse 23. 7.23. And the men of Israel gathered together at Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Now that's what the psalmist said. Do to these guys as you did to the Midianites. Remember that? Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountain of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize them, seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites. Oreb, that's the one you've heard of. Zeeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeeb they killed at the winepress of Zeeb, and they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Two of the four chieftains now killed. Look down at chapter eight and verse four. When Gideon came to Jordan, he and the three hundred men who were with him—that's the mighty men of valor crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. And then he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted. I am pursuing Zeba, that's the third man, and Zalmunna, that's the fourth man, kings of Midian, the leaders of Zuccoth, or Sukkoth, I'm going to get it right, <laughs> said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? In other words, you sure you're going to win this thing? We don't want to be on the wrong side of the battle, you know. You know, have to have you to lose. These guys are going to come and kill us. So you can see how they're just thinking. So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. And then look at verse 12. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them. And he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. And then look down at verse 20. And he said to Jether, the firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So they challenged Gideon. So Gideon arose, and he killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's neck. And then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also. For you have delivered us from the hand of the hand. Now this is what the psalmist is referring to. It's really important that we see that, isn't it? Because otherwise you just have names in the psalm. So go back to Psalm 83, and that's what he's doing. He's giving us examples from history of how God defeated their enemies in the past. He says, do it again, will you, Lord? Do it again. And now we have the third petition, which is found in verse 13. Psalm 83. Oh God, here's my, here's my third, this is what I want you to do. Make them like whirling dust. Like the chaff 
before the wind. When there's throw up the wheat and the chaff breaks from the wheat and just flows and has no power whatsoever. The wind controls it. It's out of control. It just scatters. That's what he wants God to do to these people. Rout them, in other words. He says in verse 14, as the fire burns, in other words, make them like whirling wind, like chaff. Make them as the fire burns the wood and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. Have you ever, you've been watching the news, you know about the, the wildfires that are out, going out in California. What's it like when there's a wildfire? I mean, it's totally out of control. It just jumps, jumps over roads, destroys houses, it spreads. There's no, no logic to the fire. It just consumes everything. Uh, it's sort of erratic, and you can get, if you're a fireman, you can get caught into, in the middle of it and not know how to get out because there's no pattern to this fire usually. And that's what he's saying. Make them like fire, like a forest fire, like a, a fire that's burning the mountain. What is that? It's a fire that's out of control. Make them as people who are out of control, who lose their bearings, who, uh, who are erratic, Disorient them, Lord. That's what he's saying. Disorient the enemy. Look at verse 15. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. So he's telling God to pursue them like a tempest and go after them like a storm. Now, you know what it's like when a hurricane hits down in southern Texas? Let's say it's a big hurricane coming into Galveston. What do people do? Oh, they leave, don't they? They, uh, you know, if you're in Houston and you hear this, there's a hurricane, guess what? You get in your car and you start hitting the roads. But then what happens? You get on the road because everybody's on the road. Then the road gets clogged. And then you're in real trouble. Because the only thing you have to protect yourself, you're there and it's just a big traffic jam for 50 miles and you can't get out of it. And the hurricane's still moving closer and closer and finally it gets right over you. The only thing you have protecting you is the automobile. And that's hardly any protection at all when you have winds of 100 miles an hour and driving rain. And that's what he says. Lord, you pursue them like a hurricane pursues people on the run who get stuck on the highway trying to escape town. There's no escape. That's what he's saying. That's what we want you to do. This is what the psalmist wants God to do to the invading army. So he's given three examples. Two examples from history and one example from nature, how he wants God to rout them. Then look what he says in verse 16. Fill their faces with shame. Uh, that speaks of humiliation. Uh, people were shamed when they lost the battle, and that's what he's saying. Uh, cause them to be defeated so they're shamed. Uh, and then he says also, in verse 16, we have a purpose statement here. Fill their faces with shame, and then look at right in the middle of verse 16. Why does he want God to do it? Here's the purpose statement. That, so that, in order that, in other words, defeat them, humiliate them, in order that they may seek your name, O Lord. That's the goal. The goal is not not just to defeat the people, but these nations will seek the name of the Lord. Now, notice... In verse 1, he addresses deity as God. Do you see that? Oh God. But in verse 17, he speaks of him as Lord. The word God in verse 1 is El. You know Elohim? 
But the word for Lord in verse 17 is Jehovah or Yahweh. And that's God's redemptive name. That is, in other words, reveal yourself to them in a redemptive way. Uh, this is God's covenant name. Uh, may they learn about you and know you, that you are the God who is the Redeemer. So we see there's a purpose in their defeat, not just that they will be defeated, but they may seek your name, O Jehovah, or, or Yahweh. And then there's a second purpose. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. Now watch the second purpose. That, so that, in order that, they may know that you, whose name alone is Jehovah or Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. He wants God to rout them and defeat them so that they will know that Jehovah is not just the God of the Jews. He's not some local God or tribal God. He is a universal God to whom they all should bow down and give allegiance. He's the universal God. He's the God who created everything. He's bigger than their God. Now, Assyria, this is, this is, so there's a logic behind this prayer. The God of Assyria was Asser. Assyria was so powerful, no one could stop it. And when Assyria would defeat a nation, they would say to the people, they would gather their leaders, and they would say, the reason that you're defeated is because your God abandoned you. And our God didn't abandon us. And what the psalmist is doing is saying, God, prove them wrong. That you haven't abandoned us. Don't keep silent. Get moving here. You know, that you haven't abandoned us. Prove them wrong. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why are you up? Yeah. Why have you abandoned me? See, Rome, when they put Jesus and they killed Jesus, they thought, their thinking was, ha, has God abandoned him? He can save others. But himself he cannot save. His God's abandoned him. Our God, the gods of Rome, were more powerful than the God of Jesus. Every time you have a war like this, a holy war, we're talking about between Israel and other nations, you're having what's known as a power encounter. There's something that's going on behind the scenes that you can't see. It's an encounter between the gods of Israel and the gods of the nations. And they are in a power encounter. Remember Elijah challenging the gods of Baal? That was a power encounter. Every time Jesus healed somebody, that was a power encounter. Satan and his forces holding people down, binding them, making them sick. Every time Jesus you know, performed an exorcism, that was a power encounter. He was showing that the, his father, his God, was stronger than the gods that bound the people in the Roman Empire, for example. These are all power encounters. And so healings and uh, demon possession and exorcisms or power encounters. And so they said, well, his God, his God abandoned him. And they leave him hanging there on the cross. But then what happens? Three days later, he's raised from the dead, and that's evidence that Jesus, God, did not abandon him, and that he's stronger than the gods of Rome. So that's what you have happening here. When he said, why have you forsaken me? The people mocked him. Three days later, 
God raised him from the dead, and the mocking stops. And that's our hope. That's the promise that we have. Right now, Christians all around the world are persecuted, being persecuted. There's Christians every day, maybe hundreds of them dying every day just for the faith. You know? And every time one of the enemies of God puts them to death, they say, well, our God is stronger than your God. And so our responsibility, just like we do every week in class, is pray, oh God, show yourself mighty now. And if he doesn't, then like Jesus, we say, oh God, in the future, raise us from the dead. Because in the end, those who put their faith in Christ and in God will be raised from the dead. And when that happens, you know what Bill Gaither's song says, kings and kingdoms. And when that happens, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. And we shall reign forever and ever. And that concludes Psalms for the summer of 2014. Next week, the Gospel of John. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself. We don't understand when you're silent. But we still have the promise that you will reign forever and ever. And these kingdoms will pass away. The kingdom of God will last. Oh Lord, help us to stand firm by faith on these promises in Christ's name.